So welcome, welcome all to the Dharma talk of Thursday night. I actually also have to kind of think like, what day is it? Um, it feels timeless here to some extent, doesn't it? I mean, like, I'm sure like there are moments where it feels like an eternity, especially when you're waiting for the bell to ring. But then at other times, it's just like, where did the time go? And I just love that because it really shows really that time is, a, is subjective. It's nothing objective. So, and we can fall into these timeless moments in our practice and that's just beautiful. So, um, what I want to share with you tonight is so I want to talk about the quality of equanimity and I want to talk about the um, classic list of the five hindrances. And, um, and I'll see how, <laughs> how far I am. Um, but I want to start with really um, just really taking a moment and um, offering a poem to you that for me just beautifully speaks to what we're doing here. Because it's always where, I don't know about you, but I definitely feel like this being torn between like the world is on fire, there's so much need, and this one also needs care and needs to um, be taken care of. And who's doing that if I'm not doing it? So, and this is, I think, a lot also why we come on retreat. So this is a poem by Martha Postlewaite, and it's called Clearing. Do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense forest of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Only then you will know how to give yourself to this world so worth of rescue. So in 1927, the German-American writer and poet Max Ehrmann wrote a letter to his entire family. You know, like some of these letters, I don't know if some of you do this, like at the end of the year, you basically, you summarize your entire a year and then you send it like to everybody whom you've missed to be in contact with <laughs> enough over the year. And so he wrote one of these letters and this letter would later become a part really of the world literature called desiderata, which means things wanted or needed. And the whole poem, if I have time later I might read the whole poem to you, but it starts with the following lines. It says, go placidly amid the noise and the haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. Go placidly amid the noise and the haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. And when I was a teenager, that poem was extremely popular in Germany. And my mother got a copy of it, and she framed it, and she hung it across from our toilet. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I spend a lot of time <laughs> looking at this poem, reading it, and really feeling into the meaning and reflect. You know, like sometimes can be like that, that place in the house can be very reflective and you just spend some time there. So I did that over the years and um, I sometimes wonder if that was the origin of my spiritual search, <laughs> which later brought me to Buddhism and really a deep love of the practice of silence. And um, so when I pr teach meditation classes to new students and I ask, so why are you here? What do you want? So very often what comes up is this inner peace, right? Not being so reactive, being able to live with more ease in this crazy world, not getting so overwhelmed without checking out. Is that what brought you here? Some version of that. Yes, right? We've talked about that. So what is this inner peace and how do we get to be less reactive? So let me tell you another story, which I'm sure many of you have heard before. It's the story of the farmer whose horse ran away. Remember that? So the story goes like this. So there was a farmer and, um, who had one horse. And one day that horse ran away. And then the neighbor came over and commiserated and said, like, oh, I'm so sorry, your horse ran away. And what, what misfortune. And the farmer said, well, maybe. And he was right, because the next day that horse came back and was obviously in a place where there were wild horses. And that horse brought back with him like 10 wild horses. And the neighbor again came and said like, oh my God, what a fortune. Like, this is amazing, good fortune, good for you. Now you have like 10 horses. And the farmer again said like, maybe. <laughs> And he was right again, because he had a son, like who was a young man, and he was bound to break in like the wildest of the horses. And what happened was the wildest of the horses was not happy with the breaking in, and he threw son off, and the son broke his leg, right? Which is like, if you're a farmer, like you need, like every hand is needed on the farm. So that's, that's, that's usually not a good thing. And again, the neighbor came and said, like, oh, your son, oh my God, he broke his leg, like what misfortune. And the farmer again said, like, maybe. And he was right again, because what happened is that they lived in a place um, where there were um, neighboring kings and the king of his little place where he had his farm, he decided to start a war. And back in the days, what they used to do is where they would get soldiers, they would just round up the villagers and just pull young men to be soldiers, whether they liked it or not, right? So there were these messengers coming and they took all the young men of the village, but they didn't take the farmer's son because he had a broken leg. And so you can see we can tell the story into eternity. <laughs> Um, but I think you get the idea, right? So the idea really is, um, what do we know? 
And how often do we make assumptions? And that pharma just didn't do that. He didn't buy into like the most obvious solution. He said, maybe, he didn't say like, oh, this definitely is not what it looks like. And he said like, maybe, let's wait and see. Who knows, right? And so he showed like, he showed really this inner peace or wisdom of not being so immediately like sucked into the story and knowing how things are and knowing what is right and what is wrong. He just like had this more like laid back um, attitude and said like, let's see, let's see, right? And so maybe it was his age, right? We still hope that some of us will just um, gain more wisdom (laughs) as we age, right? It used to be really the role of the elders in our community, right? That they would hold the wisdom, right? That comes with just having seen it all over and over, right? And being again not so invested anymore, like who's right, who is wrong, but just coming more from a place of compassion and love, which is what we're cultivating here. But what he showed really was something that we call equanimity. And Noli, we um, talked about that yesterday. So this is one of the four qualities, one of the divine abodes like where the heart resides. And I also really love this interpretation of the divine abodes as like this is where home is, right? This is coming home. Like love, compassion, joy, and equanimity is home in the heart. And what we're doing is through our practice work, try to find our way back to be home and feel at home in our hearts and in our beings and in our bodies which is so, so hard. So equanimity, and it's quite interesting because equanimity is a word that is not used a lot in the English language. Or is that, I mean, like, unless you're like moving in Buddhist circles, is that a word that you use on a regular basis? Probably not, right? So it's just interesting, right? And... um, so I, I, also, I also teach in German quite a bit, and we actually, in German, we have two words for equanimity. And I know there are a number of also uh, people in the room who are also not um, native English speakers, or you speak a uh, second language fluently. So you can just think about, so what's, that, what's the word in, in your language, and what does that mean? And so in German, one we have is like, we can translate that into like even moodedness, Gleichmut. And then, but there's another one that I personally like better, which is, it's called Gelassenheit. And what that actually means, it, it translates into letting be-ness, or letting being-ness. And I really love that, right? Because it's, it really, it, it, for me, it has this sense of just like stepping back, letting things be, waiting for things to unfold without immediately getting in and meddling and trying to fix and to make it the way that I think is the right way. Because we really don't know. We don't know, right? So as um, Alan Watts, there's a quote, he says, like the whole process of nature is an integrated process of immense complexity. And it's really impossible to tell whether anything that happens in it is good or bad. Um, because you never know what will be the consequence of what we call a misfortune, or you never know what will be the consequence of what we call good fortune, right? So it's like the stepping back, the stepping back. 
So just to pick it up yesterday, like with the Brahma Viharas who um, just reinforced what Nollywood yesterday talked about. So the Brahma Viharas, they're actually not separate, right? So we have love or loving kindness. We have compassion. We have joy or sympathetic joy. And then we have equanimity. And what they are is there are responses of the heart to situations. And we could say that kind of metta, loving kindness, and equanimity, they're kind of bookends, right? So loving kindness is the foundation of everything. We could say it's just like it's a friendliness or benevolence, right? It's just assuming ra- the good rather than the bad, right? Um, assuming good intention rather than bad intention. And that is a quality that we're cultivating. So this is why we're starting with that. And then when this loving kindness meets suffering, right, it turns into compassion. So basically love and pain is compassion. And that is actually really important because these qualities, they are, and you can measure that, like if you put people into MRI, brain MRIs, and measure and have them practice the Brahma Viharas, what happens in the brain lights, the positive mind states, so areas that are um, associated with positivity light up, right? And that's really important. And that is really what makes it different often from empathy, where it's just like we just feel the pain of the other person. And that can feel really overwhelming, right? Because the buffer of love isn't there. And this is why we can also practice and deepen compassion, right? And then, so, and then when the love meets, um, meets joy, it turns into sympathetic joy. Right? It's just, I'm so happy for you. And we heard yesterday, and I can definitely <laughs> relate to that, it's complicated. We are complicated human beings, right? And often, actually, um, joy or sympathetic joy is called the most difficult of the four, right? Because it's just like, we often feel like, oh, like, why didn't I get the promotion, right? Or we have this, this weird notion in our head that there is a limited amount of happiness, so if you are happy, means there's less for me. Which again, like if we think about it, we go like, oh, this is ridiculous, right? But there is something that often happens, like especially when we're not, so like the more discrepancy there is, right? The more, the harder it is to be happy for somebody. So the worse we feel, the harder it is to be happy for somebody else's happiness. And I think that's just a very normal response. Right? And so to hold that with love and to do really um, practice with that, bring awareness to it and practice with that. And here on the land, I, I mean, I really, we all, like our entire team, we want to invite you to really open and invite joy in, right? Because like it often feels like we're so immersed in the heaviness and the suffering and all the stuff that's going on and the stress and all the things that we think we should achieve here and release and turn around and all the things (laughs) that we forget to just stop and say like, wow, this is amazing. This is amazing, right? So to use your senses to say, like, to often to ask yourself the question, if there was something beautiful, if there was something joyful right now, what would that be, right? Even in a sitting, even something like, sometimes even the absence of something can be very joyful. Like, wow, I don't have pain right now. That's amazing, right? 
or I was just keeling over just five minutes ago. I couldn't sit straight because I was so sleepy, right? And now it's gone, like, woohoo, right? This is amazing, right? So sometimes really the absence of something can also be really a source of joy. So just to be kind of, have that on your radar. Um, so here's my definition of equanimity. So I try to write that up at some point. So equanimity is the inner stance to be willing and able to accept things as they are in this moment, regardless of whether they are challenging or boring, exciting, or exactly what we want. It brings calmness and balance towards moments of joy as well as difficulty. It protects from an emotional overreaction and allows us to rest in a bigger perspective. Equanimity often comes with a joyful inner stillness and contentment, regardless of how life presents itself in this particular time. It is like the eye of the storm, the mature oak tree, the calm center, which is grounded in the deep knowledge that everything is constantly changing and that so much is truly out of our control. And that we have, at least in this moment, made peace with that. So, one thing I want to um, explain that is, Um, we often get confused with mindfulness and equanimity. So if any of you has ever taken, or either is a researcher ever has taken a mindfulness test, uh, like the test your level of mindfulness like before an intervention or mindfulness class and afterwards. I don't know if any of you have ever done that. But often like the questions are something like... um, on a scale from one to five, like how reactive are you? How are you able to flow with things? Like how are you able to step back? How are you able to not identify? Right. So that is often like lumped in with uh, mindfulness. And I mean, that's a whole other discussion about like what actually is mindfulness and how can we measure that? But one thing that seems to be in most of those questionnaires is like actually some questions about equanimity, right? And then, I don't know about you, but when you started practicing mindfulness or practicing meditation, did you notice that in the beginning it sometimes felt like things got worse before they got better? Yeah? You just, you you pay attention to something, you go, ooh, (laughs) I had no idea, like, thank you very much, I actually don't want to feel that, right? And that's a very common response, right? Because it's like if we're distracting ourselves or avoiding to actually be with something or feel something, it can kind of feel like it's not here, right? But then mindfulness, right? So like the definition of inside meditation, what we're doing here is seeing things how they really are, right? So it's really this turning towards us, like shining that flashlight onto what is here, right? And we might not like what we see. And then we think like, yeah, what about equanimity, Right? Like, isn't that what mindfulness is? That I'm now like really peaceful and hold this, all of this and not get so reactive. So interesting thing is that it seems to be, and so equanimity is right on the 
on the beginning of actually being researched, right? So it's, I think it's like the next wave of research that we're seeing after mindfulness and self-compassion. Now we're like, we have like moving into the wave of equanimity. And what we're seeing there that it seems to be that we first develop mindfulness and equanimity comes later. And it makes sense if you're thinking about what we've been sharing with you over the last few days is equanimity is one of the heart qualities, right? And remember what I said yesterday about loving kindness? We can't make ourselves feel loving kindness. We can't make ourselves feel compassion. And we can't make ourselves feel equanimous. But we can make ourselves to some extent pay attention, right? And that often is very frustrating because we see but we don't have really like the uh, holding of of equanimity or the other Brahma Viharas for that matter yet. So that's just important to keep in mind so that if you're experiencing that, it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Just like, oh, it just takes a little bit longer, right? And for those of you who have been with the practice for a little bit, you know that, you know that, that that comes equanimity will come. And that's also really important that it doesn't feel like we all have these qualities, we're born with them, right? So we cultivate them, as we said, or we're opening doors, but it's not like we have to make it happen because that can be really frustrating when we're working really, really hard to be compassionate or joyful and equanimous, right? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) So... How do we invite in more equanimity? So we have formal practice. So what the Buddha taught, so like, right? So like formal practice means we're sitting down and we're just meditating. And then we have informal practices where we bring the same kind of attention to whatever we're doing uh, during our days. And the formal equanimity practice is really, really helpful if we notice that we are too entangled and invested with somebody else's suffering or somebody else's lack of happiness. It can be one person, can be groups, right? But basically, so what the, uh, the phrase that the Buddha taught is, and then what, which you would repeat in a meditation. So let's say, like often I hear that with, with partners or siblings or like your, your grown children, right? Or just like people that where you care deeply and they're, they're, they keep hurting themselves, right? And, or they're really deeply unhappy. They're not, and, you, and you've tried everything and you do everything and they're still, they're still unhappy and they're still suffering. And that can be super painful because we can't let that go. And so then the practice of equanimity, the formal equanimity practice can be really helpful. And here are the words, the traditional words is what you say in the practice is like, you are the owner of your own life's path. So traditionally the word is karma, right? But it's, it's such a convoluted and complex word so that we often use like, life's path instead, right? So you can see what works better for you. So you are the owner of your own life's path. Your happiness or unhappiness depend on your actions, not on my wishes for you. And 
there are different variations out there. So there is, um, uh, especially like Kristin Neff, who is uh, one of the founders of the Mindful Self-Compassion um, course. Um, she, and I think that from her deep own understanding, because she has a son who uh, um, suffers from autism. And so from her own suffering, she um, rephrased that phrase a little bit. And so it, it's a little bit, I, I don't have it written down right now. Um, but it's a little bit more saying like, I'm not the only cause of your unhappiness. And if I, it's hard to be, to know that I can't make you happy. And I will probably still try to help if, if I can, right? Because it, it just, it, it expresses a little bit more the complexity of our relationships and enmeshments. But the core is still the same, is that like no matter how much you want it, you can't make another person happy. And we're just like with this, like this whole hyper focus on like romantic relationships and like your soulmate and all of this, right? And it's just like, you make, you make me complete, I make you happy. I mean, there's honestly, there's a lot of, oh, come on, right? And you know, <laughs> it's not true, right? You can do everything, but if the person is not doing their part, their work, we're helpless. And that can be really heart-crushing, heartbreaking, and soul-crushing to see that, right? That sometimes, despite everything, the other person is in a different place. So that's the, the formal practice of equanimity. And you can really see how the love needs to be a part of that, right? And how compassion needs to be a part of that. And then also at times, of course, the joy too, right? The joy. So other things that are really helpful with equanimity, as we talked about that, is posture. Posture is really helpful for equanimity, right? So... Um, so this posture to sit up straight amidst experience, right? I think, I don't know, you, you know what I'm talking about? So sometimes when things are really like this, sometimes the only thing we can do is like sit up straight and breathe and it's moving and it's moving, but it makes a difference. It makes a difference. So we're not rigid, but we're sitting up straight. And there's this beautiful poem by Kabir. So Kabir, he was a 15th century Indian mystic. And he ends this, and I'll read the whole poem to you in a second, but he ends this, he says like, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are which is like, boom, I just said it, just like throw it all away, all the ideas, all the imaginary things, and stand, take your stand. And here's the whole poem, and he says, um, I said to the wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? There are no travelers on the river road, and no road. Do you see anyone moving on that bank or nesting? There's no river at all and no boat and no boatman. And there's no tow rope either and no one to pull it. There's no ground, no sky, no time, no bank, no ford. And there is no body and no mind. 
Do you believe there's some place that will make the soul less thirsty? In that great absence, you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Posture. It matters, right? Body and mind are not separate. So how we hold our body has an influence on how we can hold things. And I remember, so my teacher, Trudy Goodman, she, before she became a Vipassana teacher, um, she was a Zen teacher for a really long time. And she tells the story of that in one of the uh, Zen centers that where she, she might have even lived there at the time, I don't remember that, but where she practiced for years, like in the, in the, um, in the hall where the stairs went up, they had like a big like calligraphy scroll just from the roof down to the ground and it showed like with like this one like really bold brush strokes like one big stroke up and then a lot of the smaller strokes swirling around it i've never seen the calligraphy (laughs) but the way she talked about it and she described it just made me really understand something about practice it's just like yes right we're sitting here we're sitting here and we're allowing life to happen. And that is often the only thing and maybe that's the best thing we can do, right? So like, I'm here, I'm witnessing, I'm allowing, right? But it's, it's from this place of presence and stability, which really is what equanimity is. So, I mentioned earlier the image in my definition, the image, so the center of the storm, um, or it can be um, an oak tree. An oak tree is often an image of equanimity. Mountain can be an image of equanimity. So like sitting like a mountain, right? And there are like really beautiful poems around that. And here, like this is on the land, like can you feel the stability and the equanimity of the mountains? And we have a lot of oak trees here. Right? And the oak tree is actually quite an amazing tree because the oak tree is very stable compared to some other trees because oak trees have tap roots, right? And here's something in it as a, like a beautiful analogy. It's like you don't know what kind of tree it is until you have some storm. You don't know which tree is going to stand and which will fall, right? Which is true, like for sometimes for. Like people in our life too, you don't know, like, will they keep standing in the storm? Like, will they keep standing with you with your storm, right? Or will they fall? Do they have top roots? Will they stand up and still be there, right? In the midst of the storm with you. And so I think it can be really helpful. So to ask yourself, what's your top root? What keeps you strong, right? What could you use to ground yourself more, right? In this, what we call this adventure that we call life. Like, so how can we keep showing up in a way that it's not 
killing us. It's not burning us out. It's not exhausting us, right? So what is our, what is our why? Why are we, why are you here? Why are you meditating? Why do you want to cultivate the heart, right? I think that is really very um, intimately interwoven with this question of like, how can I keep standing up, right? Or keep getting up, like when life blows the way it does. Another really important one is to take yourself less seriously. Have you noticed? <laughs> um, when we're sitting on the cushion, um, I know it's kind of embarrassing, but if you think about so the percentage of thoughts that are about yourself or how that relates to you, like even if somebody else did something, but what did that do to you? It's embarrassing, right? So it's like we barely think about other... If we think about other people, it's usually in relationship to us, right? So... And we laugh about it, and that's actually really good. So I'm not saying that we're not important. We are very important, right? But there is something like sometimes it's just like, oh, enough already, enough already. Like how often have I told myself that story, right? We hashed, rehearsed, looked at it from this side and this side and this side, and if I would have said, and oh my God, why didn't I think of that? That would have really shown her, right? Because, and it's just like, oh, God, like, is it time for lunch yet? <laughs> it's just like, we need a break, right? So really, um, the way that we want to practice that, and actually brings more equanimity, because the more we are invested with the I, me, or mine, right, the less equanimity will come in, because we are too clingy with, like, I have to have it this way. So, like, of course, we all have roles, we all have identities and identifications, right? So just like the like roles of, like, in your family, at your work, in your community, like, what you identify, right, in general, like, what, if you have a gender identification, like, I mean, like, all these things. And what they do is, so a lot of the ways that we get upset is because these identities feel attacked or threatened. So either by the outside or we doing it to ourselves. So am I a good enough mother, right? Like, am I good enough this way? Did I, like, right? So it's like this constant comparing and evaluating and then whatever people say to us or how they, what they do to us. And it, immediately it goes like, what does that mean? What does that mean to my role? Right? And, and that brings a lot of... Um, that takes a lot of energy to kind of internally keep defending these roles of like, no, no, no I'm, I'm, I am good enough or I can be that way, right? And so to say like, yes, this is all important and can we also at least at times step back? Can we step back and just hold these roles more lightly, right? Because if you're really thinking about it, like when you're just sitting here, like how many roles do you actually have here? Of course you have a number of them, right? But like your family ties? Like do you need to be like a daughter or a father right now? Or a professional whatever? Um, or, I don't know, an athlete? Or, I mean like, right? So just think about these roles that are actually not here on retreat. And how much time you might still spend on the cushion. So how many of you have just spent today quite a lot of time with having discussions either like 
as a mother or as a friend or as a in your role thinking about work right so in these all these things that are actually not here some of you have done that yeah yeah right <laughs> again it can be quite embarrassing how much time we spend with something that is actually right now not here and again it's it's not about making it unimportant but just can we hold it more lightly right and so I'm, um, I remember when I was still working as a physician, so like what I would do is like I would, um, in, back in Berlin, I would ride my bike to work and then I would walk um, just with my helmet and my backpack and jeans or whatever up to my ward where I would change into uh, my physician's clothes. And so people usually wouldn't pay, people I didn't know wouldn't pay attention to me. And then I changed, right? I put in like my white slacks and my white polo shirt and a white lab coat and a stethoscope and my name tag and titles and all of this. And I step out of the room and suddenly people go like, oh yeah, Dr. Wolf, Dr. Wolf, right? And it's just like, what happened, right? That's, that's just, it's a coat, it's a coat. And then it's interesting like how then I also, with that, I stepped into like being somebody, right? And we have all versions of that. And then in a way thinking like, so can I kind of hang up my coat, right? When I don't need it. Can I hang up my mother coat, right? When I'm here on retreat, do I really need that? Or do I need it all the time? Or like fill in the role that, that you feel like you, you carry a lot and that's that's stressing you can you allow yourself to actually to be nobody right and nobody in the best possible way like not like oh you're nobody that's not what i'm talking about but really not having to be anybody to anyone and for me that's such a huge relief huge relief with all the roles and responsibilities right that is like one of my greatest pleasures going on retreat is that i don't have to be responsible for anybody else other than getting myself in the hall on time and out of the hall i mean and that's it i love that and what happens is it is deeply um recharging and relaxing to my system right because all that chatter, right, that's going on takes a toll on my body because my body couldn't understand what's actually going on. My body relies on what I'm telling myself in that moment. So if I tell myself stressful stories, that is what my body is responding to, right? And if I can give myself a break and just say like, beautiful, Breathing in, breathing out, being bored, right? Then oh, the body can just relax in a way that it otherwise just can't. It's just like as if we're carrying around this huge backpack filled with a lot of boulders, and I allow myself to just put it down. And it can be really hard because I'm very loyal to my boulders, right? I keep them closed just in case they don't run away, right? And they won't run away, so. <laughs> um. Yeah, so just playing with that. So, and another thing that we take very seriously is our mind states, right? And this is where the five hindrances come in. So five hindrances is a classic list by the Buddha. And I love that. I love that because, again, I can take it so personally. Think, oh, this is me or this is 21st century brains and minds and all of our cell phones. And just like, no, that's just our brains. It doesn't matter. That's just what the brain will come up with. So, five hindrances. First one, 
Let me ask you, so I first name them and then we can see if you've, they feel familiar to you. So first one is, is um, wanting, right? So wanting is basically wanting sense pleasure, right? The second one is the opposite of that. It's like, I don't want what I have right now. It's aversion, right? Um, like get away. The third one is uh, sleepiness or um, lethargy. The fourth one is restlessness or worry. And the fifth one is doubt. Okay. So how many of you, <laughs> maybe in the le last, like, I don't know, hour, but definitely like over the last day or two, have experienced some form of wanting sense pleasure, like looking forward to lunch, looking forward to going for a walk, thinking about that piece of chocolate that you still have in your luggage, right? I mean, something, anybody? Yes? Yes, and you can just look around just in case you think like, oh no, that's just me. I'm sure like everybody is just like blissing out here and having no thoughts and definitely like no difficult mind state. So wanting mind, right? And so this quality of like, it's like, hmm, we, we move forward and we can feel that in the body and it's usually nice, right? Daydreaming is one of these. Like, so sometimes we can kind of, uh, fondle ourselves with daydreams. Have you noticed that? It's just like it's better than just sitting here <laughs> and feeling the breath, right? Okay, then the opposite. Anybody had some resistance, aversion to anything here? Just the, yes, sitting going on like any longer? Yeah, of course, right? We all know that. Then next one, sleepiness, lethargy, sloth and torpor. Yes, right? <laughs> Yes, most of us, right? And it's, it's, it's just very common. It's just a natural state. And then the opposite of that is restlessness, antsiness, worry about something. Anybody? Yes, right? And then the last one, um, the last one is doubt. And doubt is either doubt about this practice. Is this working? Right? Is this the right thing for me? Or can I do it? Doubting myself, because obviously, like, everybody is so peaceful in here, right? And nobody can have the same mind states that I'm having. So anybody had some form of that? Yes, of course. Yes. So, welcome to the five hindrances. <laughs> so here's the thing. So the hindrances in themselves are not a problem because they are just arise because we have a human brain, right? So, but of course, often we don't like them. We don't like to be sleepy. We don't like to be restless. We don't like to be in aversion, right? We don't like to worry, but here it is. So uh, the most important thing is really, and this is how it ties in with equanimity, is to learn to recognize what they are because they always come in the disguise of uh, content. Have you noticed that? They always make sense in your brain. Like, why are you feeling that way in that moment, right? And that is like, that is where, where it gets tricky because that's really seductive because you think, okay, it's me and it's my story and this is why. But what we want to see more clearly is can we start to recognize all these hindrances just as colored glasses that we have on? Right? Because I don't know if you have noticed that, but it's something you can pay attention. If you're really in the throngs of aversion, everything is awful. Nothing is nice, right? And if you're in the throngs of just like wanting, it's just like, wow, everything is so wonderful and nice, right? And if you worry, if you're in worry, then like you can worry about anything. Have you ever tried that? If you're really in worry mind, to just think about something that you normally don't worry about? 
your mind will usually gladly pick it up and worry about that too. Thank you, mind. <laughs> so what we want is to kind of to get like to the common denominator of like what does restlessness feel like? What does worry feel like? Sleepiness we usually don't have so much problems with being <laughs> able to recognize that. But can you recognize aversion? Saying like, wow, that's aversion. Wow, that's visiting. Aversion is visiting, right? Or that is um, wanting mind that's visiting. And to recognize that as a flavor that colors our experience. And to not take it personally. Because that is what's happening to a brain, right? To the brain that has a normal, like, lay person's life, right? And what we need to remember is that these are just like, so the image that we're, or it's used traditionally, is that of the blue sky and clouds, or flocks of birds flying through the blue sky. So our mind is like the clear blue sky. And those hindrances are like clouds. And sometimes there can be clouds for an extended period of time, or there can be a lot of clouds to a point where we can't see the blue sky anymore. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right? And then it can feel like there is no blue sky anymore. Which I think that is like one of the main reasons why we need to keep going on retreat. Because the retreat practice really allows, I don't know if people feel that at this point or have had moments where just suddenly there are no hindrances. And suddenly like um, you have a moment really of ease and going, oh gosh, I forgot. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the nature of the mind, not the clouds, right? And we need a reminder. We need a reminder because it's hard to remember when we're in the throngs of the hindrances. To say, this is not who I am. This is not what the mind is. The mind is bigger and it's vast, right? And so on retreat, we really have a higher chance to glimpse that, maybe just for a moment. Like when everything suddenly falls away and we go, oh, yes, of course. And what's really interesting is it usually doesn't feel like, oh, I had no idea that was there. But it's just, it's a recognition. It's a sense of like, oh, I forgot. I forgot. And there's a sense of naturalness to that, which is just very, very beautiful. So, but really important is that we're not getting into a fight with the hindrances, right? Um, in the beginning, in particular, is really, so the, the instructions for the hindrances is to be able to recognize them and to name them and not to fight them. Because if we're fighting them, we're just added more aversion into the mix. Thank you very much, right? So to just allowing them to be there, just like we allow thoughts to be there, like we allow emotions to be there, because that is part of the experience of this moment. And we can step back, and we've talked about like the labeling or the naming practice is to say like, oh, this is what aversion feels like, huh? Or there's a lot of aversion here. We're not saying like, I'm aversive, that's usually not helpful, but saying like, wow, aversion, hmm, right? Just the way you would say like, wow, cloudy or wow windy right so and we're not taking it personally in that way and it is super helpful because you might not like that it's windy outside you might not like that there is a version here but if that's not you right you go like oh well 
it's here, what can I do, right? I'm just sitting here, breathing in, breathing out, and there's aversion moving around. And the interesting thing is, and that feels very counterintuitive, is the more we can allow this, the sooner these things will pass. Because what we don't realize that our constant fixing, managing, manipulating, right? That actually keeps it here. Because that's kind of energy that feeds it, right? And that's hard to trust in the beginning. And so, again, like we really often need this extended period of time as we have on retreat, because you have nothing else to do than watch your hindrances and say, like, what's it now? <laughs> Let's just see. And what you notice is that for most people, we have some favorites, one or two. Like we have some really like steady visitors. And sometimes they can also feel like it's a total hindrance attack and we have all five of them at the same time and we just want to go into our room and nap and <laughs> not feel that. One of the things I really want to um, say about that is the monkey mind. And it came up in our one of our groups today. Is so it feels like really that monkey mind has become such a negative term that it feels like, um, so monkey mind is just like the mind that's constantly doing this, 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 and usually we don't like that, right? So, oh, I have so much monkey mind. And so in a way, it feels like monkey mind has become the enemy that we have to get rid of. And if you're a good meditator, you are able to get rid of monkey mind. And if you still have monkey mind, then too bad, right? So obviously like not efficiently meditating or like you just don't have it. Or I mean, it's just like, just stop doing that. Monkey mind is a natural thing that will happen, right? Don't get in the way. Really, we're working a lot with like foreground, background. So foreground is the breath, foreground is the feet, foreground is whatever you have here. You decide what the foreground is. And the monkey mind, all of that is allowed to be in the background. And that is actually one of the core trainings that we're doing, right? To be able to not get lost in that, not to get agitated about even agitation in our system. Because as soon as we're doing that, well, we've just added more agitation to the system. Right, so how can we hold this? How can we hold this? Um, so, kind of starting to land. Another <laughs> um, way I talked about that the, the Brahma Viharas have enemies, and the near enemy, and that's is, is really important with equanimity, is indifference. Right, so the um, near enemies are kind of the, um, what's that, impersonators? Like, so the Elvis at Vegas, so like they, they kind of look like it, but they're not the real thing. So it, indifference is the near enemy of equanimity. And sometimes when you have equanimity deepening, it can be scary. Like I've worked with um, people who felt like, my God, I don't feel the pain so much anymore, right? Is that indifference or is that equanimity? Um, and so the difference between, the main difference between equanimity and indifference is do you still care? And that is something we could, when we go back to the farmer earlier, we could just say, look, maybe he didn't care anymore. Maybe he was just fed up with being a farmer and his son is a pain in the neck and <laughs> just like... I don't think so, but right. So, but this is something we can only see when we're actually paying attention. And for ourselves, we can ask ourselves, right? Do I still care, right? But it's like it's holding this in this bigger container. And 
we care deeply. We care deeply. And so really what we're doing here, so, and this is really goes back to, um, to what we're doing here in the retreat, which is hard because we are also well-trained to work harder, right? To try more. So if we're feeling we're not getting what we want or getting the state, like what we do usually, like we either give up, just like, right, <laughs> who cares? Or we try harder, we buckle down, we try harder, we grow our teeth. And what we actually want, and that is, can be so much harder than anything we have ever done, is can we allow ourselves to lean back? To, like, we use a lot of words like allowing, accepting, surrender, receiving. And I'm sure, like I've been on that side when those words were dropped, definitely in the beginning of my practice, that part of me was just like, just recoiling from these words because they felt so foreign and I had no idea how to actually do that. I knew how to work hard and just stay with it and try harder, right? The whole thing of like receiving, allowing things to unfold, I was not good at that. I couldn't do that. But this is again a thing that we open up to more on retreat to say like, what about if I, just as an experiment, right? Be your own scientist. So you maybe know already that working harder doesn't work. So how about doing less and see what happens? And trusting this, and this is really something as for me really like a lot what happens here is healing work, right? And if you have a cut, like you don't tell your body how to heal. Your body just does that, which is just such a miracle in itself, I think, right? And so can we trust that if we're just leaning back and we have the conditions, we need conditions, of course, the body needs conditions for that for healing to happen, right? But if we set the conditions here and we just lean back, can we trust that healing or some level of healing will happen by itself, and we don't have to do that. Wouldn't that be a huge relief? So, and I want to end with a poem by Kim Stafford. She is uh, the Oregon Poet Laureate, and it's called The Courage to Surrender. When you are your own worst enemy, when you act judge and jury against yourself, when you can't do it all and can't accept your failure to prevail over the impossible, it's time to be stern with your mind, be kind to your heart, give it a rest. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.